Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the My Vinyasa Practice Podcast, Heartfelt Consciousness. My name's Michaela. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the My Vinyasa Practice Podcast, Heartfelt Consciousness. My name is Michaela, and today we have a very, very special guest with us. Nashala Joy Devi is here with us today. Nashala, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited. I feel like this is great timing, especially with the new release of your of your updated yes. book. Here it is. Yes, The Secret Power of Yoga. Um, don't worry, listeners, I will be linking to it in the description so you'll be able to find it down there. Um, let's start first things first. Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about you? Ah, a little bit about me. Well, I don't know what to say a little bit about me, but um, I've been on the yogic path for many, many years, and um, I spent 20 some years as a monk, a monastic member of uh, a community, a yoga community. And I've also been involved with um, uh, medicine, first as a physician's assistant, and then working with yoga, proving that it can reverse heart disease and can help alleviate some of the symptoms of cancer and its treatment. Um, the last so many years, I led teacher's trainings and for many, many years, both uh, beginners, advanced, and then cardiac training for people to work with cardiac and cancer patients. And then most recently, I've turned my uh, interest more back to the uh, bringing the feminine back into the wisdom teachings of yoga, which I feel are very, very important. And that's why I wrote the first version of The Secret Power of Yoga in 2008. and I only included the first two padas, the first two books or sections, because that is the most, um, uh, the essence of yoga teachings and practice. But then I realized that it might be time now for the, for the yoga student who was new to the sutras in 2008 to really delve into it. And so I added the third and fourth pada um, and made a whole new addition plus added a little bit to the other part too. So that's where I'm at. And um, I believe that yoga should serve everyone, no matter what their identification is. My slant is mostly toward the feminine because I'm a woman and I've seen the prejudices um, so rampant in the uh, scriptures and in the yoga community itself, that I feel that that's my um, my way, and anyone who would like to be a part of that is welcome, no matter what your identification is. That's, that's a little bit. It's a little bit about me. Just, I mean, I think that's a very beautiful summation, if you can, in such a short amount of time. <laughs> Thank um, you. I also really appreciated your approach to the first two padas 
with then the adding on to the last two, because kind of like you said, my, my personal journey, which I feel like the universe is, has a funny way of putting me where I need to be at the right time. Right. Um, I'm just now feeling as though I'm connecting with those deeper practices. Like you talk a little bit about in the yeah. second and, or in the third and the fourth pata in the second part of your book. Um, so I really connected with the way that you, um, that you, that you put that out there. So would you like to talk a little bit about your book? That kind of leads me into, into that. Yes. Again, a little bit about my book. It's a lot of bit, almost, all the things. It's almost 500 want. pages. <laughs> um, well, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I had been teaching uh, basic and uh, advanced trainings, as I mentioned. And I noticed that as yoga came into what we would consider mainstream in the United States. Um, and I, I, there's many reasons it could be like this, but this is what happened. Every, people migrated to the physical. That's what they felt comfortable with and that's what they wanted to do. And some became very proficient at it. They did really well at it. Um, but you know, also that's just a certain population. Not everybody can do that kind of physical. And if we look at, the yo at yoga as a whole, we can see that the physical is one very small slice of what yoga really is. But that's what took off in the United States because we're more physically minded than we are um, philosophical or spiritual minded. And that's a generalization, but probably an accurate one. Um, so what I felt is that it was time for yoga students and especially yoga teachers to delve into the wisdom, which is so profound in yoga. It's such a profound wisdom. And when I started talking to people about it at, at conferences or my courses or whatever, and I said, why don't you study the yoga sutras? What, what, what is it? And they said, you know, I can't relate to it. It's not written in a way that I can relate to. And I understood what they meant because I had adapted a lot of what I had read to me because I read it and it didn't work. So I just readapted it. But not everybody is so um, bold to do something like that. So then my students started saying, well, why don't you write a book with your interpretation? And I said to them very honestly at the time, I said, it's never been done by a woman before. In 2000 years or whatever it is since Patanjali first organized all this, uh, codified it, a woman has never interpreted it before. And they said to me, well, you could be the first one. So um, it was a big undertaking, but it felt like something that needed to be done. And what I did from, from the feminine eye, if I can say that, or the feminine heart, I realized that we had to get rid of all the negatives in it, all the negative words, like to say that ahimsa is nonviolence it is to me was crazy because ahimsa is one of the highest spiritual values. Why would you reduce it to nonviolence? 
Instead, what, what is it in the positive? It's, it's experiencing love and compassion for everybody. That's really what it is. It's the opposite. So I started going through and changing, which is not easy. The English language is not an easy language to do a positive in. So I just started systematically going through and changing the words I could to not deflect the meaning. So that was something very important to me that I, that I wanted to happen. The other thing was um, to have feminine-centered parables because all the other parables are male-centered. And this is one of the things I always had a problem with my teacher with. He, he used these things and I'd go up to him afterwards and I'd say, you can't say that to the modern woman. It, you know, it's offensive. Um, he said, well, this has been going on for centuries and thousands. I said, I don't care. The average woman today, if they hear that story, they're offended by it. So that's one of the things I figured if I was writing my own book, I would just write things about um, how a, a woman looks at things. Um, and uh, for instance, there's a sutra that talks about Saucha. I don't know if you know that one, but uh, one of the niyamas. And it's typically uh, translated something like this that says, uh, Saucha is disgust for one's own body and the bodies of others. Well, as a woman, you don't see that. What do you do? You take a little, cute, adorable baby that's just pooped in its diaper, and you don't admonish it for pooping in its diaper. You talk cute to it as you're cleaning up the mess. So I felt that there are certain things that were so inappropriate from a woman's and probably even from a man's view and I felt they needed to be changed and fortunately we may be at this moment be able to say a lot of not kind things about our country but one of the things is we still have free speech at this moment and that gave me the ability to say whatever I wanted and anyone who wanted to agree with me, could pick up the book. And if they didn't, that's fine too. They get another book. So I felt like um, I wasn't changing the teachings as much as I was changing the delivery of the teachings, how they were being experienced. And that was very important to me. And that's something that I've gotten a lot of feedback on a lot of people like that. And um, so that's a little bit. And then when I added the third and fourth book, which are the most esoteric of all the sutras, it was very difficult because how do you make something very esoteric simple enough for people to understand? The idea of the third and fourth book is you really can't fully uh, embrace it without having going through samadhi first, having touched samadhi, because it's so far out. So what I did, because I wanted people to understand that they may already have cities. Some, don't, don't assume just because they're beginner students that they don't have cities. I mean, people have them. And so I try to explain them in a way that people could say, oh yeah, 
I hear the phone ring before it rings. I was thinking of my cousin Susan the other day, and I opened my email and there was an email from her. So I try to make it in a way, yet keep the esoteric aspect of it too, because I feel that that's so important uh, for us to realize that yoga is a mystical tradition. It's not something that is practical. It's very mystical. So that's a little bit about the summary of the book. That's, first of all, I'm so admiring of your boldness to, <laughs> in a time where no one else was doing it, no. to do it. That's amazing in and of itself. Um, besides the fact that you then wrote a book and you shared it with <laughs> everyone and started creating ripples that way, right? Um, Not without criticism, believe me. I can imagine, especially yes. as you said, being in the country that we're in. Yes. Um, and where the, the philosophy that we are studying comes from. Yes. Makes sense. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. We needed that perspective. It's for um, you. I did it for you. Yeah, I did. For you and the other future generations, the future is female. Amen, is what I say. A woman. A woman. A woman. <laughs> A woman. Because it's been too long that we've been kept down. Way too long. And why have we been kept down? Because we're so powerful. That's why they put us down. If we weren't powerful, they wouldn't pay any attention to us. I love that. We have a power, whether we use it or not, we can use it for many things, but we have the power to create another human being. That's amazing. And if we don't use it for creating another human being, you use it for creating books, you create it for beauty, a beautiful art, for a business, for whatever you do. But we have so much power in us that they want to put us down. Can't let them. No. Can't let them. Nope. And I really appreciated what you said specifically about Ahimsa because that's a, one of the one of the ideas that's been really sitting with me lately and the idea of it being unconditional love versus just nonviolence, because just going from that, that changing that term makes it feel so different. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give me other examples of ways that you change the language to be more positive? Yeah. So Let's look for a moment. Let me see if I can get to it. There's a very beautiful um, uh, description of wisdom that is called as vairagya. Vairagya. And it's, it's coupled with abhasya. So abhasya and vairagya. And vairagya, for most translations that I've read, is usually defined as non-attachment or um, detachment or something in that way. And what that does, at least in my experience, 
we don't need more detachment. What we need is more understanding. So to take a very high quality and, and um, really celestial idea like Vaidagya and to reduce it to not being attached to something bothered me because I felt that people, some people were taking it to the extent and said, that's not my problem. So that's somebody else's problem. I don't have to worry about that. And if we all keep doing that, look at this, look, well, we can see the state of the world now. Instead, if we really look at what does Vaidagya mean? What does it really mean, the word? And we find that what it means is colorless. It doesn't mean non-attachment, it means colorless. So what does that look like? Okay. So here's a glass of water, right? Clear. So this is clear. We're clean, we're clear. Then we add, so this is Vaidagya, colorless, all right? Now what, look what happens. What happens to the color of the water, right? It turns pink, right? But now watch, it's clear again. So this is what that term means. It means that when you're with something or somebody, an idea, a person, whatever it is, you're totally with them. And the minute that you're finished, you're back to yourself again. You don't take them with you. You don't take anything with you. You are the pure, clear instrument. And nothing taints you. That's what Vaidagya means. Very different from being non-attached to something. Yeah. Because to me, what that says, being non-attached is, is a, a form of fear. I can't be attached. Oh no, that's gonna disturb my peace. This is a form of power. I am clear and pure. Even if you put me and I look like I have a color, I'm really not. Do you understand? And that's what I, I, that's what I try to do in the book. To me, this is all about empowerment of the individual. It's not about supplication to a higher power, et cetera. It's about who are we in our spirit and in the earthly existence? And can we walk through the world with a presence and a grace to help others without getting caught in color in Vaidagya. Ragya. This is this is this is Ragya. This is Vaidagya. Make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I can see. <coughs> I'm so sorry. No, no. We're all we're all doing that these days. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Excuse me. Oh, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I can see very clearly, though, how harsh that that kind of masculine touch is yep. versus when you take it. And that feels so much nicer. And like you said, so much more like mystical rather than. I don't know. Tyrannical. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yes. Just watching your face realize that says everything. 
one is expansive and one is contractive. What do you want? How do you want to live your life? Do you want to live it expansive or contractive? It's up to you. And then that's what I love about this, about the sutras. It is up to you. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. It's up to you. And I think one of the problems is we're so used to telling other people, telling us what to do, what to think, who to worship, how to worship them, that suddenly we're on our own and people don't know what to do. And that's where the book is helpful. It's a guidebook. It helps us in that way. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That kind of leads me into my next question. Okay. Um, So I'm assuming this is an idea that you've had for quite a while, but when it began to percolate, I'm assuming you were, that's when you were studying under your teacher. Yes. When you say it, you mean you're writing the book? The, so the, the idea of applying feminism, applying the feminine perspective to ideas that are inherently more patriarchal. It started when I was a little girl. I, I saw the wrong right away. I, and I, I can't pinpoint the time for you, but I just know that you don't have to look very far in our world to see the patriarchal slant. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You pick up a newspaper, everything is he, 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 he. You pick up a book, he, 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 he. Where are we? All the major religions, it's about he, he, he. So this got to me at an early age, but I had no power at an early age to do anything about it. I had to wait till I came into my power because if you start doing those things before you fully come into power, it gets sloppy sometimes. And your your vision is not clear and you can't just go through with it. So I waited and I worked in medicine. I worked in women's health mostly. That's where, I, that's where my heart was. And then when I got into this, actually the book came out uh, after I had become a monk. I left monk, being a monk. And that's when I started looking at the world in a very different way and speaking to women everywhere. And, um, and I think when the um, younger generation would come, there would be different questions. They, they weren't complacent like we were. They weren't raised in the same patriarchal way that we were. So the questions came up and that spurred me. Okay, let's, let's look at this then. We have to change this for the future again. We can't continue what's been going on for the last 5,000 years into the next 5,000 years. Women are not gonna take it anymore. We've come into our power, especially in the West. And we need guidebooks. We can't use the old ones anymore. We need something that's going to guide our spirituality. And that's one of the reasons that I've written it. And I thought I was going to open a whole force of women to come through and start doing scriptures. And it just didn't happen. Uh, I think it's probably because women 
so long weren't allowed to study the scriptures that after a while, they just didn't. They just didn't. And we're so used to having a man interpret the scriptures for us. And here's a time for us to do it on our own. Yeah. So what was it like then living in the ashram as a woman? Mm. Well, I must say that probably our lineage, our um, way, was one of the easiest for women. Uh, most of the other sects are um, divided not only by gender, but they're divided by what you do if you're this gender. We didn't have that. The men mopped the floors, the men washed the dishes, the women did whatever they could in any other way. So we did, and we were all entitled to do the sacraments, not just the men. I would not have tolerated it if it was any other way. Um, but yet there were, there was a lot of sexism, if you would call it, go, that went on. And being who I am, I spoke out about it because that's who I am. I, 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 it's not just for me. When I see injustice, I have to say something about it. And that's why ultimately I had to leave because you can't keep making waves and stay. There has to be a point where you just say, okay, I, there's more that I don't agree with than I agree with. When I came in, there was more I agreed with than I didn't. Now it's switched. I have to go. Yeah. But it's, it's a challenge to live under anyone else's vision. Because that's their vision. That's the way they got there. And it's very difficult for you to change your life and become like that. And then for a period of time, I really, and I'm going to say this, I think it's essential to spiritual growth and development. It's like anything else. You wouldn't just sit down at a piano and play the piano. You have a piano teacher. And when that teacher has taught you everything they know, you get another teacher who's even more skilled. And I think the spiritual life is like that too. Yeah. I really can see some of, what Michelle has learned and what you're saying. And it's, I, I really appreciate it. And it's why I feel so drawn to, I feel like Michelle and how she approaches everything because at the end of the day is, so you keep saying it's about what works for you. I can give you my, my understanding and I can give right. you what I found, right. but from there, it's up to you. And in order for you to make that judgment, what has to happen? Because if you take someone who's never done anything and you say, okay, whatever you want to do, well, they may go out and do drugs or do alcohol or whatever, whatever else. So there has to be a certain level of purity for you to even make those informed decisions. Not you, per I'm not, that's the English language again. You means one or many. Yeah, uh, one. I'll use the word one. Um, and, and that's what I think is happening today a little bit. Like when I spent the many years with my teacher, I was aware the whole time that what I was learning 
would be useful at a future time. It was not something to me that I thought, oh, I'll be here forever. It was a learning experience like college or something like that. When you're in college, you can't constantly argue with the professors because they're not gonna, you're gonna, not gonna learn anything. You go there because you believe they know more than you do. That's why we go to college, right? And it's the same thing. You go in and you put yourself under the tutelage of who you consider to be a master to teach you. So then you can go and be independent on your own. But if it happens before you're pure, people misunderstand it. They misunderstand the teachings. And that's where we get in trouble. Yeah. So you're very fortunate to have found a teacher who has that kind of integrity and purity. Yeah. I love Absolutely. Her I love her too. <laughs> Talk about her all the time, but I feel the, the same way. It's, I feel very fortunate to have found her and for her to have learned from everyone that she has learned from. And it's, I'm very thankful I started here rather than somewhere else and had to relearn a little bit to come back. Mm -hmm. um, but remember, anything you're feeling that's good is not Michelle. Right. It's right. you. That's right. the most important thing. And to me, a teacher, our teacher used to always say this. He'd say, if I jump 10 feet, I want you to jump 20 feet. He said, I want you to be better than me. And I think that's, it's like a parent. You know, they want the children to have more than they had and better education or whatever it is. And I think that's the same, but we have to keep remembering and the teacher, especially, this person is a divine being sitting here who's finding their light. And what all my job is to help them look to the left, look to the right, go straight, that's it. Because I'm not giving anyone enlightenment, they already have it. And I think that's very feminine too. Because you, you hear a lot about these male teachers are going to say, I'm giving you this. You're not giving me anything. You can't give it to me. Yeah. So good for you. Good on you. Thank you. Um, I didn't consider that being a, the feminine approach, but you're right. And I don't like the other way. <laughs> I don't like the I'm giving it. I don't like that. You know, most of us don't. But some of us are so used to it that we don't know that there's another way. I mean, the stereotypical husband or mother and father is like that, right? She's comforting us and, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. And he said, what do you mean you're buying the car up? What do you mean? You know how much that's going to cost? My insurance is going to go, right? I mean, I hate to stereotypical, but that's what happens most. Now, with the younger men, they're kind of coming around a little bit more and they're more, I think, personally, I think it's because they were raised by conscious women that they're now more soft and more, but, you know, certainly my father's generation, that's what they were like. And I don't think that brings us closer to people. It pushes us away. I would agree with that because it's almost as if I'm holding something above you or away from you right. and making you work for it rather than 
like you said, I'm just holding space for you to look in all of these places and then choose mm-hmm. what's what's best. Yeah, for and you. I'm just helping you look to the left, look to the right. Yeah, it's a very um, see how I think of the feminine is the pronoun we. That's how I think of the feminine. We, we like working in teams. We like working in circles. We like, you know, even getting back to the, um, uh, and it still happens now in many places, the quilting bee or the sewing bee. Everybody sat in a circle doing something, but sharing with each other. And I think this is something that um, is one of the ways we hold our power is by being with other women in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And any anyone who holds those values, it doesn't have to be the physical body has to be feminine, but the spirit has to have that femininity to it. Don't you think? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like I see that in even our male students who are in our community. Yeah. Um, there's My husbands like that. Yeah. My husband is too. I don't know that I would be with him if he weren't. Exactly. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is someone giving me orders and walking around telling me what to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But when you have someone who's, who shares those values with her and shares your heart in that way, then it lifts uplifting. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it feels, it's very obvious when you put it that way. But it takes, I feel like it takes people a long time to get there, obviously. And, and some people just never want to go there. Yes. And can I be okay with that? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? You have to be okay with that because we have no choice. We can't, we can't change other people. We can't make other people do things. But the only way, to me, the best way is by our example. That's it. That's the way we we function. Yeah. I feel like that's the best way to teach. Um, And, you know, that's what I've learned from Michelle, right, is application and experience is, is everything. And so example is important. I think it's the most important. You know, in Catholicism, um, traditional Catholicism, they, uh, when you go into a monastery or a convent, there are so many rules. The rule book is that thick. It's almost impossible to know all the rules. But there usually is one or more persons that they call the living rule, okay? And that person, if you watch them, you will learn the rules of the convent. Right? So in a way, that's the person that holds a lot of the wisdom because they know what to do when. It's the same kind of thing. If you're a teacher or a yoga student or whatever your affiliation with it is, it's not even your job to do it like that. It's who you are. It's your, your experience of the teachings comes through in your living situation. It's not even like you're trying. It just happens. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so as much as we say, you know, only teach what's within your practice, it'll be very evident if you're teaching something that is not within your practice. I feel like I have so many other questions, but I will keep it, keep it brief and on topic. Um, <laughs> I have more questions about ways in which you feel that we can bring the feminine back into spirituality and in scripture rather than, or other than just, you know, listening to each other and reading and learning from each other. The scriptures to me, especially the yoga sutras, it's a living testimony to how we should live. And I think what we need to do on a, a ver many different levels, one is be the example. As Mahatma Gandhi said, be the light you want to see in the world. And that's, that's part of it. Also, I think that those of us that teach no matter what we're teaching, whether we're teaching strict asanas, it doesn't matter. Always add a little bit of the yoga sutras. Even at the end of the class, if you just say one sutra, that's it. If they're in deep relaxation, or even if they're just getting ready to leave. One thing, like a thought for the day, because the students that come to us Trust that you're teaching them yoga. They don't know the difference between asana and pranayama and uh, vachara, and they don't know the difference. They're trusting you that you're going to give them something. And to me, that's our responsibility. Now, don't give them too much and give them spiritual indigestion if that's not what they want. But a little tiny bit, tell them what ahimsa is. Sprinkle this through your day, whatever it is. And I don't think enough yoga teachers are doing that because in the teacher's training, we don't have it enough. It's not enough of the sutras for people to really get to love them and understand them. So that's the first thing I think we can do is start putting it in our classes a little bit. And then maybe after class, someone will come up and ask you, what is this ahimsa? What does that mean? You've now sparked the curiosity and you can go further. The other thing is let people know what you believe by how you act toward them. So for instance, if you're going into buy something very simple or in a supermarket, let's say you're in a supermarket, before you start checking out, Look at that person who's behind the cash register. Who are they? Can you connect with them as a divine being? Take a moment, not even a minute, just a moment. How are you today? How's your day going? Everything changes. Someone saw them as a human being and a divine being. So what you're doing, you're teaching yoga all the time. It was funny because it's the other day someone, I was talking to someone very briefly, it was in a store or something like that. And they said to me, um, I don't know what it is about you, but you've made me happy. 
just in our short conversation. So it's not that hard to do. It actually is fun in a way. And that's how we start living yoga, not just practicing it. You practice so you can live it. It's like practicing the piano so you can play for someone. Yeah. And I think that start small, but don't try to hit people over the head with it. No one wants to be hit over the head with it. But just little by little, we feed people. Yeah. It's very powerful. And people will ask you, why are you so happy? What, what do you do that you're so happy? Oh, this and that. No, no, come on, tell me. Well, I did practice yoga. Oh, you mean all that physical? Well, that too. But I go into meditation and I feel my heart and I feel other people's hearts too. Oh, and they may walk away. That's enough. Or they may say, tell me more. Whatever your work is done. Yeah. That's very beautiful. And I feel as though that's something that I've done more recently that we've kind of started seeing each other more in public. Um, I love to compliment yeah. people and to see how they feel when I compliment them because yeah. usually it makes them feel very good. You'd just to be like, I like your shirt. Whatever it is, yeah. My, one of my favorite things, and I see you have them, is to ask people the story of their tasks. Oh. that's my thing uh, and there's so many people and we live in Arizona uh -huh. which is warm like Texas yes. and so people are bare most yes. of the time yes. and I can't believe what happens when I ask people and the stories that I get and uh, they, they say to me thank you so much for asking it made me feel close to you and it's just I, I don't do it for that reason. I do it because I'm curious. I figure if someone puts something like that on their body, there's a reason for it. And I want to know what it is. Yeah. And no one has ever said to me, it's none of your business. Um, uh, I, it's a personal thing. No one has ever said that. So I think engaging and letting that other person know, hey, I see you, this is who you are. And I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you're clerking. I don't care if you're pumping gas. I don't care if you're a Senator. It doesn't matter to me what you do. I'm looking at who you are. That's the most important thing. Yeah. I can, I agree with that person. I'm sp spending virtual time and space with you, but I feel happier just talking with you. That's sweet. And I think you are speaking exactly to that idea that we, I see you, you your practice. I see your connection. I see your, that's, I don't know. That's what I see. That's what I feel. And why do you see that? I don't know. I don't know. Am I looking for it? But how do you even know to look for it? Because you have it in you. Oh. If you didn't have it in you, you couldn't see it in me. It's like 
people say to someone, did you steal that? I bet you took that. Those people are dishonest people. Honest people leave their wallet out. They leave all kinds of things. They don't think that anyone would steal because they don't steal. So if you see something beautiful in me, it's because it's in you and it's reflecting. That's what happens. And it grows when we share that with each other. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's very simple, but we, we don't pay much attention to it. No. I'm excited to start incorporating that intentionally. Um, something I've tried to start doing because forgive me for admitting this. I have bad road rage, Nashula. <laughs> I oh. have bad road rage. So something that I picked up from Michelle was instead of getting so livid with this person, what if I took that moment to say, that's a divine being and a human experience and I'm going to stop there. It's life-changing. It's mood shifting to not allow that misunderstanding any further past that recognition of, okay, this is happening, but that's a divine being in a human experience. Because if you road rage, who does it hurt? Yeah, the other person doesn't even know you're screaming at them, right? It's you, so actually, you're hurting yourself. When we realize that, we have to start laughing because I'm yelling at myself. I'm getting my blood pressure is going up. All this is happening to me, not him or her, right? I have a friend that uh, also had has road had. He's working on it, and when someone did something, and he used to say things that we, I won't say today. Instead, he started saying, to a higher birth. <laughs> because in his mind, anyone who would do something like that was not so elevated. So he's wishing them to a higher birth next time and they can go on. So whatever way we can trick our mind not to get angry, especially at something that we can't change. I mean, that's the, that's the craziness, but we all do it. How many people get angry at telemarketers? These poor people, they're trying to feed their family. And they know that if they get you right at dinner time, you're usually home, right? But they don't deserve to be yelled at. They're just trying to do their job. Just don't answer the phone, right? So, but we're almost, the privilege that we have been given to get angry at people. Who, who are you to get angry at me and say those things to me? I don't give you permission to say those things. You know, I, I'm walking away. I don't want to hear you say that. I had that happen actually just two days ago. I was talking to this woman. I was actually in a swimming pool. And we just started talking as women normally do. 
And at a certain point it got political. I won't go into it, but you can imagine. And, um, and uh, she looked at me and she said to me, this is what you should think. You should think like this. And I stood back and I looked at her. I said, now you're telling me what I should think? I said, nobody tells me what to think. That's my privilege of what to think. So there are people that want to just take over your whole consciousness. It's up to you if you get let them or not. Yeah. You know, when we talk about the sutras, you talked, you asked me one sutra that I did um, radically change. And I think this goes on to what we're talking about, the consciousness. Where is your consciousness? First of all, where is it when you walk out the door before you get into road rage? Where was your consciousness? Were you late? Were you trying to make up time? What was happening in your life that caused you to have this short fuse, which just erupted just like that? I think that's the first thing we have to do is analyze, how am I responsible for this, right? What is my role in this? Because we'll never know what their role was because they're all the way in Cleveland by the time you, uh, you catch up with them. So what happens is we put too much emphasis, in, in my experience, on the mind and not enough emphasis on the heart. And because of this, the mind gets us into all kinds of situations. There's a beautiful, one of my favorite quotes, um, his name, I forget his name exactly right now, but he said, the heart has reasons that reason knows nothing of, right? And I think this is the thing that we have to understand. So when we look, Right at the beginning, when it talks about yoga is the uniting of consciousness in the heart. Normally, this is translated, yoga is the succession of thought waves in the mind. When you move it from the mind to the heart, it changes completely. Because my mind may think a lot of things about you. Bad, not you, but one but my heart will never think bad things about you. Because my heart knows that you and I are one. My mind doesn't know that. My mind says, oh, she's this age, she's this color, she's this sex, she's it, right? This is what my mind does. It, it chops it up and it puts you here and me here. But our hearts don't do that. And that's why I purposely, translated the sutra with the heart. So yoga is the uniting of consciousness in the heart. The example we just talked about is when something is not staying in the heart and goes out toward judgment. It goes out to the mind and it goes toward judgment. The heart doesn't judge. The heart feels. The heart cares. The heart's soft. So Getting back to what yoga is, it's uniting of consciousness, bringing all the consciousness back home to the heart. 
That's what it means. Yoga, chitta, priti, naroda. I was just jotting that down. Thank you for sharing that. Deep within our hearts, we abide as pure divine consciousness. But with the material world pulling us every which way, our consciousness is drawn outward. As the knowledge of the divine self slowly fades, it takes with it the understanding of our true nature. Always come back to the heart, come back to the heart, come back to the heart, come back to the heart. Mind is going, so when this is purported as the ability to silence the mind, that is the most ominous task in the world. If anyone has ever tried. But instead, let the mind do what it does. And move over to the heart. You don't even have to stop it. Just let it be. Just say, I'm not interested in what you have to say. I'm more interested. This person and I are one. That's what I'm going to focus on. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes total sense and it feels great. I love that. It's so simple. And I feel like that makes the, the idea of approaching things like meditation a little bit easier because there's this whole misunderstanding of like silence and quieting. And what if instead it was a, a deep dive into your heart and your heart's knowing rather than a cessation of what your mind is doing? Exactly. I think that's a beautiful note to end on today. Is there any final thoughts or feelings that you would like to share? I just wanted to offer people, uh, we, we offer people a free weekly sutra. So if you go to our website, abundantwellbeing.com, which I think you'll have available, and you click on free weekly sutra, every week, one sutra will come to your inbox with a line of commentary. And then you can learn the sutras that way, one week at a, one sutra a week in that way. And if you want to pick up the book, that would be even more in-depth study of it. Yeah. That's a very thank beautiful you so offering. Much for doing this. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I honestly thank you for your time and for sharing your, your wisdom with me and with the listeners. I would love to have you back on at some point if you would ever love to chat with me again. I would love to chat with you again. Yes. Beautiful. We'll have to connect about that. I look Otherwise, forward to it. Thank you listeners for being here and we will see you next week.